meant to. Yeah, you're meant to hear yourself. Okay. Cool. Otherwise, it'd just be for effects, wouldn't it? Just yeah. looking good. <laughs> but this is this is the first time actually using these uh, these microphones. So I've just changed. It. I used to have them set up on the table with like mic Big, stands, uh, but it all felt a little bit formal sometimes. Yeah, like so you're in an interview or something, waste them to hold the mic and. Exactly. Here, at least we can kick back a little bit, relax. We can. I don't know what to do with my hands, so it's all good. That's fine. Pet the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so how's your day been, man? Good. I woke up like everybody hopefully does, yeah. and then I went to the gym. Actually, because we're moving house, I've uh, been doing boxes, just unpacking and packing and all that sort of boring stuff. Yeah. I've moved to like 20 houses. What? I know, we've moved like 20 houses. I hate moving. It's a shocking job. How have you managed to do that 20 times? No idea. It's yeah. the worst thing ever. But I just got my motorbike licence. So yeah, you were telling me last each. week. So how did so that go? Good. It went awesome. Yeah. I've been thrashed. It's so quick. That should be so illegal. No seatbelt, no air. Like, the more you think about it, it's like, like, Dad's got a pretty quick car. Yeah, there's not much forgiving and, yeah. about a motorbike. Yeah, and mine can, you know, go on par with him. And it's on a learner's bike. And what is like, your old man driving these days? He's always been into his cars. Yeah, it's just, it's a GLC yeah. um, 63 AMG, but mine's just a normal Kawasaki 400 learner's bike. Mm-hmm. And they, like, get to 100 at the same pace. Like, it's... It's awesome. So though. you're having it's, good fun. Yeah, it's the best feeling. It's kind of like, have you ever been to Bali or anything like that and riding the uh, scooters? It's like no. first, first day in Bali, you're on your on your scooter and you're really nervous because of all the traffic and shit yeah. going everywhere. And then by a week in, you're drinking it up. You're riding your bike like <laughs> flat out after 10 drinks and thinking you're the best scooter rider in Bali. And you can yeah. see how it goes bad pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, the only thing I'm just super aware of it's like i sort of back myself on the bike but it's the other drivers not seeing you exactly and not being aware but there's not much you can do are you going to do it daily or is it just going to be a bit more of like a hobby thing that you like to go for a bit of a therapeutic like i hear people that ride motorbikes and they really like that it's almost like a meditative state where they get to go for a long ride on the road and zone out well i reckon before riding my motorbike there was probably three places where you just completely disconnect and not go on your phone and one was in the shower for me, it's when I drive because mm-hmm. I'm just driving and the beach, like when you're in the water, in the ocean, just no distractions, no, you're just you with your own thoughts. And I feel for like sure. that's very similar on a bike because I don't have like a stand or you can't just get your phone out and check it. There's too much you have to concentrate about. So, And we get very, even with that too, like you get very, you heard of earthing? So basically like grounding. So it's very important, I suppose, in the modern world, we've had a physical detachment from physical contact with the earth so do you ever recall like being in a kid with a with a trampoline and you you touch it and you get the spark Mm. so that's because we always have an electronic charge running through our body but the rubber soles on our shoes give it nowhere exactly it gives it nowhere for that energy to go so when we get barefoot with the earth it allows some of that uh i suppose frequency to go back into the ground hence the name grounding and earthing which can be really good from an inflammatory point of view from a stress point of view from a pain relief point of view and when you're doing that with sand and in water there's actually a very big physiological um response to it so you you do feel a lot better for for that beyond just being present i suppose you learn something new every day and when you're cold not that the beach is that cold it is at the moment Mm. but it's pretty hard to uh be worrying about what's going on last week or in the future when you're when just you're pretty trying to cold. Keep afloat. Just not ground, doggy paddle. What about when you're playing poker? Am I with my own thoughts? You present? No. Oh, I'm present, but I'm not like just concentrating about me. I'm trying to pick up on people's body language. I'm concentrating about my cards. I'm trying to protect my chips. 
I'm trying to maintain a poker face, not mm-hmm. give away, not go on my phone too much so it doesn't look like I don't care or anything like that. Poker, it's very like mentally demanding because you can sit on the table for eight to 12 hours, mm-hmm. but you're not really not concentrating for eight to, 20, eight to 12 hours. Cause you're zoning you, in and out. Yeah, if you're, if you're not concentrating, you're in a hand. Mm-hmm. And say you're versing a play you haven't versed and he raises you and you bet when you bet you he raises. Yeah. You might fold thinking, oh, he's got a better hand. But if you were concentrating, he might, you know, do something with his left hand before raising to know it's a bluff or if it's a call. So if you realise that he always does this with his left hand and then raises, that's a bluff, you can re-raise and he will think about it and fold. So How did you learn to do this? Playing poker. Mm. Um, I learned when I was probably around nine or ten with dad teaching me. So he's always played? Yeah, he's always played and would always. And he was the one who sort of drew your attention to what things to be looking out for, etc. Yeah, and plus I think the more you sort of just play, the more you realise. Like we have home games maybe once a week. And because we've all been playing with each other for so long, it's gone to the point where we all know each other's tells. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's all it's all fun and games, but mm-hmm. when there's like the last four or five, it's really serious. So how do you go about it when you know what your own tell is? And trying to not reveal that. Well, I've that's what Dad and his friends all say. I sort of got like a dumb face when I'm playing. Like I look pretty dumb. Like it's just like really boring. And there's it's like really the lights hard. are on, but no one's home. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's really hard to tell. But I don't know. I've, sometimes under the table, I'm I shouldn't say it in case people. I was about to say I'm not going to ask yeah, you what it is because no, I don't want you to reveal yeah, your no, shit. I can't. I can't say what it is. But I know. <laughs> I know what it is. You know what it is. Yeah, they can't see it because it happens under the table. Interesting. But, That's probably a good way to yeah. disguise it, I guess. Yeah. Um, nice, man. Yeah. But uh, how often are you playing poker? Um, well, during COVID, there was barely any because there's no online poker anymore in Australia. And obviously, casinos were shut and you couldn't go to anybody's houses. Mm-hmm. So for March, April, May, June, pretty much all last year, I wasn't playing anything until about November when you were allowed. I think it was... Uh, 10 people at your house and you only really need nine or eight to play a good game yeah so we're playing heaps around november last year can i interrupt there for a second why do you like eight people for a good game because like obviously two is gonna be shit house but two is yeah two is bad because if you're let's say the minimum is six-handed that's the smallest like a tournament can be played at Mm -hmm. yeah it's there's more chips on the table with more people being played. Mm-hmm. So say you start with 10,000 chips and you're six-handed, that means you can really, if you knock everyone out, you're on 70,000 or 60,000. Mm-hmm. But if there's nine, you could be on 90,000. But if also, if it's six-handed, the blinds are coming around a lot quicker, which sure. is what you have to play and you're only on the button every few hands if it's six-handed and your your hand is more valuable. Like Jack-10, <coughs> when it's six-handed, is better than nine-handed because... Mm-hmm. Jack, it's less chances of people having better cards six-handed. That was my next question. So obviously you've answered there, the pot's bigger, but also how many decks of cards do you use? Okay, so it's probably a little bit easier for you to work your mathematics when there's a few more people in terms of the probability. Yeah, the math sort of doesn't really change six and nine-handed because you don't know what the other players have got. But it would change between six and one and two people, surely. Yeah, but if if we get dealt cards... And I don't know what you've got. Yeah. The chances of you hitting your cards are still the same if it's an eight or nine-handed because you don't know what the other players have got. True. So your percentages don't change. Even though there technically is more cards to be dealt, Yeah. you don't know what the other players have got. Yeah. Because you, say you've got 
two aces and I've got two kings, and if it's just heads up, you've still got two aces to hit. But if it's nine-handed, mm -hmm. technically they could have an ace, but you don't know. So your percentage is still the same if it's heads up, unless they tell you've got an ace or they show an ace. So I'm sure everyone's sort of got their own kind of breakdown on approach and strategy in the game of poker. But we've got obviously the mathematic component. You've got obviously the reading the player component and your tells. What yeah. would you say the sort of split is there? Well, in cash game, because you're sitting down with money on the table and you're leaving with cash in hand, it's a lot different to tournament. So I like to play tournament poker where it's say you buy in for $100 and there'll be a 1,000 people playing and it's a bigger first prize. Whereas if you're playing a cash game, you sit down with $100 and you're really only versing the people on your table and then you can leave with whatever you want mm -hmm. and you can keep rebuying. I feel like that's too gambly for me. I like to play a tournament which can go for two or three days, 12 hours a day with a bigger first prize. So it rewards patience because I'm a patient player. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like... It, Tournament and cash, it's two different sort of formats. It's interesting here to talk about patience because, I mean, you've probably adopted a little bit of that probably from your old man. I mean, test cricket requires a lot of patience. <laughs> it does, it does. But he, on the poker table, is very aggressive. He's super aggressive. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but I think it's because he's getting older now. Mm -hmm. So he's getting a lot less patient. Less patient. So he's impatient <laughs> now. So he's showing that on the poker table, but... So we've just mentioned your old man and we've just been here rambling and haven't really done any introduction yeah, sorry to anyone. Poker. <laughs> no, don't apologise. I'm the one who's uh, steering mm -hmm. that ship. But for those that are listening, thank you, Jackson, for coming in today to have a chat with me, mate. So thank you for having me. Um, this is the third time we've met now. Um, and I suppose... The it's only the third. Yeah, so we, we I saw you last week. And then I we we trained change. together. We'd had a little bit of chat through social media and things yeah. like that. It um, doesn't feel like I've only met you three times. Well, there's probably a little bit of background to that in a way that we've had probably a kind of rapport between one another uh, given the, the friendship that exists between our parents um, and the circumstances of which our lives have um, seen unfold in that um, it's pretty unique and I guess that's what led us to um, reach out to one another, man, is that um, you recently went on the show, the S it was SAS, yeah? yeah. Um, and my mum actually brought my attention to it to see your interrogation interview. Um, and I know that neither of us really like talking about these things. Yeah, but, um, you know, I think it's got a bit of a different dynamic when we're both in the same sort of position somewhat. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I was definitely, you definitely had my attention from the way that um, you described your experiences of walking into rooms and always being identified and labelled not as your own man, but as Jackson Shane Warne's son, as I have been uh, David Boone's son, um, rather than just Jack. And so I empathised with those feelings and wanted to reach out to you knowing how hard it is in a way, at certain times through our lives, because people say that they understand. Yeah. But, but they can only understand to what their imagination can really allow them yeah. to. So that's kind of left a, a nice little introduction for mm. you and I to uh, have some common ground, man. So, yeah. again, thank you. That's no, all good, because it was hard. I don't know if it was like for you as well, but I can. it probably was growing up, not being able to really relate to anybody else, because yeah. there wasn't really especially that I in my circle and where I went to school and who I knew, there wasn't many other famous parents or successful parents or parents that 
played for their country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was footy players, but I think there's diff- uh, there's a big difference between AFL and cricket, and they're the 100%. two. Sort of Cricket's biggest, international, and they're the two sort of biggest things, especially in Melbourne. Yeah, but yeah, no, I just feel like growing up, it was always the worst thing walking into a room, and especially as I got older and I was meeting newer people. The first thing they'd do when they introduced me to their friends was, oh, hey, everyone, this is Jackson, this is Shane Warnson. I was like, oh, and as soon as they see Jackson and then Shane Warnson, their sort of face changes a little bit, not in a negative way, but in like a, oh, like, hey, it's just, nice to meet Just in just, a way that you don't just, want. Yeah, they just change because if they know me as Jackson, that's awesome. But if they know me as Shane Warnson, maybe they act a little bit different. Well, not maybe, I know they act a little bit different. Yeah. But when people say, oh, I don't care about who your dad is, blah, blah, that's also nice, but... Also, if you yeah, if you just knew me as Jackson, it'd be a lot better. But obviously, I'm very proud of my dad, and I'm sure you're proud of yours. And you know, it's bloody awesome when people come up to me and they say, "Because of your dad, I play cricket," or "Because of your dad, I watched the cricket," or "Your dad's the best commentator," or you know, my dad was a fan of your dad and X, Y, and Z. So it's it's awesome what he's done for cricket and for Australia. So I can be super proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated that when I first sort of discovered, you know, your social media and how to look at it because, um, you know, you do have some photos, on, plenty of photos on there with you and your old man and, um, you know, you can tell that you are really proud of him mm-hmm. and it's, um, it's interesting for me with the perspective of, like, I relate to everything you just said, like, and not that it all is a competition between you and I, mm-hmm. but y- there's not many people in Tassie. Yeah. So when you say that there's not many, you know, professional sportsmen or, um, you know, famous figures, so to speak, there's fuck all AFL players <laughs> and even less. The only other one has been Ricky Ponting, you know what I mean, that's gone anywhere really Tassie? from Tassie. Yeah, Ricky's in Tassie, so. Um, but. he's He's got kids, but they're still. But they're much younger, younger than us, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean there, but for, for such a majority of my life um and you know my old man's a pretty modest kind of guy he's pretty quiet uh when he speaks you listen he means what he says and he says what he means and doesn't waste any time with that but I kind of somewhat have felt like I had to hide in the shadows and pretend like he wasn't my dad and I wasn't allowed to be proud because I didn't want to be seen to be name dropping or boasting or being seen as if I thought that I was any better than anyone else or superior, which was by far from the truth. But perception's a really hard thing to change. And I'm only at a point now where enough time's gone by. I've maybe, you know, he's been retired for long enough. I've established myself as my own person in a new city mm. with a with a different career path. And um, and it's it's only probably been in the last 12 to 24 months, really, I would say, where... I'm actually getting a greater appreciation on everything that he's done because I've almost just tried to focus on him as a dad mm. as that job and not the cricketer. But now when I look back at all the things that he achieved, it really is just remarkable, admirable, and just I am so proud of yeah. everything that he achieved. And I think I can relate to that as well. Always growing up, it was always such a conversation that I'd avoid with people if I was meeting them for the first time or out in public and if they ever... Or what does your dad do? Or what does your family do? Or where, like, if that ever comes up, it's always something I try to avoid. Mm. Whereas now I've realised, obviously I've been proud of him, like you said, all the time. But it's sort of you don't want to look boastful or like arrogant, and say, oh, you know, 
do you know who I am? My dad's Shane. What? Like, oh, I just think that sounds so. Yeah, or I used to have to palm mouth. things off. They'd be like, oh, he's the batter on it. I'm like, nah, he's no good. Or yeah. he was the fast bowler. Something yeah. just taking the piss out of it to yeah. just try and brush it off. Yeah, you always try and undersell it. But now, ever since I did the SAS, and I can sort of hold my chest up and say I've got something to my name. Like no one can take that away from me. What I did on that show and. Mm-hmm. Now that when someone comes up to me, it's some. It's most of the time it's oh Jackson, you know, my parents loved you. Oh, I loved watching you on SAS. Well done, and keep trying new foods. Have you never tried new foods or whatever that is? And so it's just it's, as I've gotten older as well, I'm sort of more comfortable in who I am, but also I can appreciate what he did a lot more because I'm about to turn 22, and it's cool that when he was 22, he was making his debut for Australia, mm-hmm. and even though we're on two completely different spectrums, it's that as I'm getting older, I can say, oh, my dad was doing this at this age and I'm not going to be resenting it. I'm going to be more proud of him. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess we can just... We don't get to choose who our dads are. No, we it's don't. Not, it's not our fault. People so would always say that. They probably said the same thing. They're like, oh, what's it like having Boonie as, as a dad? I'm like, well, I don't really have much to fucking compare to, do I? Yeah, yeah. and it's people when you do something, they say, oh, you're only doing that because your dad's shame on It's like, what do you, what do you mean? I'll do it if he wasn't shame on It's like if I... You know, we just got our motorbike license. It's someone saying, oh, you only got your motorbike license because your dad's Shane Warner. Like, what, what does that mean? That? What does that even mean? What does that mean? Are you saying if he wasn't Shane Warner, I wouldn't get my motorbike license with my dad? And it's like, so you're still getting a bit of that shit? Yeah, but it's all, you always will, no matter what. And I think it's because I'm still quite young. People think, oh, he's 21 or 22. He can, like, cop it all. He's still young. Because if it's usually older, they can feel like they can... I don't know, when you're at school and you're in year 12... You can and again, you've you got all those peers still here in Melbourne yeah. knowing who you are, where, you know, that's part one of the reasons why I left Tassie to come yeah. to Melbourne was to try and get a fresh start and be my own person that wasn't associated with that, you know? Well, the only place I reckon I could live full-time other than Melbourne is probably London. Mm-hmm. But in London, that's actually where Dad gets the most reception. Yeah. At every Like, everywhere, because... The English people... I get it. Yeah, they love cricket. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been but to India? I have. What was it like there? Were you with your dad in India? Yeah, loud. Yeah, very because they, they are fanatic. It's they like, pray to them It's their there. religion. Mm. I've been in a cab and it's like, I'm not going to do the accent, but they go, oh, Shane Wan, God, and they start like praying, like they worship cricketers. Oh, I know. The, the, like you said before, like how your mates would introduce you in that way. And I don't know about you, but I used to always feel very uncomfortable and hate it and I'd probably laugh it off awkwardly because yeah, I didn't really know what to do. But the amount either. of times, mate, that we'd find ourselves, you know, out drinking and would be in a taxi and, you know, a lot of taxi drivers are Indian or Pakistani or, or of that ethnicity and the boys would think it was hilarious to be saying, oh, you this know, is David Boone's cab. son in the yeah. cab trying to just row the cabbie up and they'd be all excited. I'd be uncomfortable. It was awkward. Then they're like, oh, you're going to give us a discount on the cab thing and I just want to hit them. I, I just want to hit them. It's similar when I get Ubers now because your name pops up. Obviously, mine's Jackson Warren and I'm not going to change my name for Uber. No. But sometimes when I get in, they go, oh, you like Shane Warren? And I go, yes. And they go, oh, that's cool. And like you can automatically tell they just want to ask about him, which is awesome. I'm so happy that they love that. But it's also like... Yeah, it's Jackson. I'm just trying to get an Uber from point A to point B. Yeah, mm. we can talk about Dad, but like, I know it's I'd prefer just have some peace and quiet yeah. for a second. Yeah. But, yeah. So how did that go? Because I know that um, you know I played a lot of sport 
and it was forever my childhood dream, maybe even beyond a dream. I just thought, um, you know, from a really young age, you know, you're again, I can only speak on my own experiences. It'll be interesting to hear yours, but, you know, we're growing up and we're in the MCG change room and, you know, we're four years old and we're getting special treatment and, um, you know, you've got important, perceived important people coming up to introduce themselves to you, happy to meet you. Oh, do you play cricket? Are you going to play cricket when you grow up? Are you going to play cricket yeah. for Australia like your dad? And four-year-old me is not going to tell John Howard no. <laughs> like, so by the time you've spent 10 years saying yes because that's what, you're, what you think, what you're, you meant think you're meant to say, yeah. that is very ingrained in your subconscious beliefs and mind and and there's not even a plan B. There wasn't even a possibility of anything else. So that um, that amount of pressure obviously became pretty problematic. For me, I don't think I had an issue with skill. I needed a sports psychologist at a young age. I had, I had performance anxiety, so to speak, on the cricket field because in the nets, no you problem. Just, yeah, you just but on felt the, like you always had to perform. On the, the weekend, you, got, you can feel people's eyes burning in the back of your head or you're, playing, you're trying to play a game of backyard cricket at lunchtime on the school ground and people are celebrating like they've won an Olympic <laughs> medal for getting you out and they go, like, it's a boasting point. You're like, for fuck's sake, man. Like, yeah, that's why I don't know why, but I, even now I've... Say I was just in Gold Coast and all of my mates were all playing beach cricket. I don't know why and I shouldn't have this thought, but every time I pick up the ball and I'm about to bowl, I feel like, I don't know, there's just so many, so much pressure. And they probably don't, they don't care if I bowl good or bad. Yeah. It's just the subconscious pressure of like, shit, I have to bowl. Yeah, it's pressure you put on ball. yourself Yeah, almost. and I don't know why at 21, nearly 22 years old, I should be having that pressure when I barely, I played three games of cricket in my life and then... Dad never pressured me into playing it. He just wanted me to be happy. Mm. But in the first or second game I played, I actually took a hat-trick. I know, I was just about to say, you took a hat-trick, no. I know, and he only got one hat-trick in his entire life. My old man actually caught the hat-trick ball. Oh, he did? Yeah, I in know. back pads. Yeah. So at uh, at home, our family home, they just sold it. Um, but they they, the picture. Dad had his, the, he's got his um, cricket memorabilia office with um, a lot of things, and there's the, the newspaper cutout. Um, with both of those two with their hands up in the air yeah. and um, your dad's written on to it saying, you know, thanks, for great catch or something, yeah. you know, or whatever. It's, it's cool. Yeah. No, so when, but when that happened, I was, it was in year nine. So I was around 14, 15 years old. And the next day, Herald Sun, big papers, and, you know, it was pretty much everywhere. So then yep. the next week when I went to go and play, there was photographers and everything at that game. But it was in the like the thirds team in year nine. So I was only 14, 15. It wasn't even really serious. Yeah. But just seeing all that pressure and it was, I don't know, it was just so not needed. But all the other boys were loving it. But I didn't like it because I knew there was so much pressure on me to perform. Yeah. And I don't think I had a very good game. And then they said, you know, X, Y, and Z. So it sort of just killed. Did they lag you? Yeah, they sort of just killed the vibe. But I wasn't, it was purely playing cricket for fun. I wasn't taking it seriously at all and it just happened to be that I got a hat-trick. But yeah, but the media won't miss out on an yeah, opportunity they, to spin yeah. some bullshit. Yeah, but my parents were never, this is what you have to do, do this, give this a go. They just wanted to see me happy. <coughs> so I played all when I was a kid to about 13, 14, playing footy and then I played soccer and then I did tennis, lawn bowls, badminton. I played pretty much every single sport except for cricket. That was last. Mm-hmm. And I played cricket and then went back to badminton and lawn bowls. So I was like, oh, 
but I mean, long ball sounds a lot more relaxing than cricket. Fuck the pressure of <laughs> sitting there, and, and it's a prick of a game as a batsman. <laughs> yeah. If you get out, it's a long day than just sitting in the trenches and then fielding all week. And there's your weekend gone. So and we just I just missed the boat on sort of 2020 as I've sort of finished up playing 2020 was just sort of coming on the scenes and that was probably the form of the game that was probably the most suitable for me and I think maybe that's a bit ingrained in you know I've always been a pretty strong kind of guy um, physically so I could hit the ball quite well um, and enjoyed that sort of aggressive style of play but I think a part of that beyond just my enjoyment for you know hitting the ball hard was that anxiety. It was like, okay, I'm going to get out soon so because this it. is what's been happening because I'm obviously so stressed about trying to do it well. Well, it's just like, well, if I can hit the ball hard, I'm more likely going to get a four and a six and at least I'll get some runs. So at the end of the day on paper, it doesn't look too bad. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that works until it doesn't. Yeah. Well, for me, I didn't even give – actually, I batted one or two of the games that I played. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, they just wanted to see me bowl, bowl, bowl. And I guess at that age, you can't really say, oh... Yeah, you weren't even allowed to be a batsman. I wasn't even allowed to bowl. Yeah. Like, you just sort of just do what you're told. Yeah. I don't know. And at the same time, man, like, I I don't know what it was like for you, but I went to a, like, a prestigious school in Tassie, I suppose, which I can laugh about now with my parents was a pretty expensive babysitter Mm -hmm. because, you know, school didn't really gel so well for me, but... It's almost like the school in itself use you as a bargaining chip to, not even a bargaining chip, just, just again, they can use your name to pump up their own yeah. ego and prestige to be like, look at us, we've got this person in our school performing and then, you know, within that as well with everybody's expectations of you to be great and you display some talent mm-hmm. at training or something. And you're never really given a chance to succeed. So, you know, like you're, you're playing, you know, the first grade cricket at 15 years old, but I haven't even had an opportunity to get better yet. Now all of a sudden I'm yeah. playing with Tim Payne, who's Australian captain right now, uh, along with against George Bailey and Brendan Drew and other guys that are playing for Tassie, um, you know, a bunch of other guys that have played representative yeah. cricket. My first ball of... First grade cricket, I got hit in the head by Brendan Drew, bowling probably 140 kilometre an hour. The second ball hit me in the nuts. And you know what I mean? You never actually was yeah, given an opportunity to, to create and, success yeah. as a habit because you'll push so hard. Yeah. Because I, I feel like it, when you're at such a young age, that's when you make mistakes. That's when you experiment. That's when, I don't know, change your grip, bowl different. That's when you try everything new. Mm. But like you said, getting thrown straight in the deep end for the firsts or the ones don't have that opportunity to make a mistake or not perform or learn because I feel like if, if you're in that top-tier team, there's already people watching you, watching yep. this guy from a young age, oh, he's going to be awesome, he's going to be bad, whatever. So after one game, you're pigeonholed into, oh, he's not going to be that good. They don't give you the opportunity to go again. You just get dropped straight into the twos. And and that was just crushing to your self-belief. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's, you know, it's such a mental, such a mental game cricket or any sport for that matter you know what I mean yeah people think you just go out and bat and then you go out and bowl but you know you've got to know where to bat how to how to bat how fast you've got like one you got to react less less than a second seconds or something less when the ball less less when the ball depends who's bowling it yeah if your dad's bowling it you've probably got one and a half (laughs) seconds if it's Brett Lee you've got half yeah because people think oh because when you're watching TV it's like ball bounces and you hit it when you're batting 
yeah, like you said, less than one second to react. So you can't, you just... It's got to be muscle memory. There's no there's no decision-making process there. And if you're anxious and peeking out... Yeah, if you're scared of the ball, it's like... You're tense, that's not going to go so good. Yeah. Yeah. Cricket, man. <laughs> I'm glad that's done. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like for me, it's still some question that I get asked from a few people because I am 21, 22, still like right in the age of playing you're not playing whatever yeah so some people say oh do you play cricket and i go no and they go oh it's like a disappointed that's huh? a shame it's like oh never. <laughs> yeah, <what's that laughs> shame? yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean it's like no matter what else you're doing that's a good thing that's successful even if it's better than the you know the average person it still seems to be of some disappointment in other people's yeah. eyes not that their opinion matters but that's what you got to learn over your life is where to channel your energy and attention and whose yeah. who's opinions and beliefs are you actually going to listen to and value over your own and the people you love. Do you have a subconscious thought of like you've left, you've let Australia down or people down by not playing cricket professionally? Because I have, I've got like a thought, it's not a big thought anymore, but I used to think, shit, like I'm not playing cricket for Australia. I've let so many people down, especially by not even giving cricket a proper go. Uh, definitely, definitely. I think, um, like I said, you know, it's ingrained from a really young age just by the words that you're exposed to, the way that people are treating you differently, all this sort of stuff. Um, and in my mind, my only pathway or finish line to, um, be deemed successful or have, having fulfilled your potential just overall done well enough was to quite literally objectively bypass my own father's records mm. which is like cl climbing mount everest to, to begin it. with because he's in the top 10 you know he was the second australian cricketer to ever score or play 100 test matches yeah. you know what i mean so the the percentage of chance of you getting that to begin with yeah, is so small. So it has taken a long time to be at peace with those shortcomings and failures, and that's had to have um, been worked on a lot um, and requires a lot of empathy within my own self-talk mm. um, and forgiving yourself, I suppose, letting yourself off the hook and understanding... Um, you know, the reasons and the pressures behind it. Um, but, you know, all you ever want to do, I think, anybody that has a healthy relationship with their father, they idolise them in some light. Yeah. If he was an accountant, if he was a lawyer, whatever, I probably would have wanted to have done that. And then you've got this awareness, although, like we said, we've got nothing to compare to. You still know that he's different. Yeah. You know, you still know that um, everybody's... So you've kind of almost looking up to your dad like he's a god. Mm. Um, so all you ever want to do is... It, it was never for myself. It was for other people's expectations, which then became my own expectations of myself because I thought that was what important. And I thought that the only way that I could make him proud was to fulfil the expectations of what I felt completely around me. So I remember the last game of cricket that I ever played... So I went to the Hutchins School in Tasmania and the deputy principal of that uh, school was actually the cricket coach. He was a South African guy. He was pretty fanatic about it. And black and white, he's a cunt. 
Um, and he fucking begged my old man to come to training on a Thursday night to help with a centre wicket practice again for nothing more than his own dick swinging fucking entertainment. Um, and anyone who's played within sporting culture at a high level recognises the competitive mind and the way that we get pretty hard on ourselves when we don't play a good shot or we miss a goal or whatever it may be. And so I think in that centre practice, uh, I I played a couple of bad shots and probably swore or, you know, to myself, not at anybody else, so what? Yeah. And then on the Saturday, uh, walking out to play, um, I was opening the batting and he literally said to me as I was about to walk onto the ground, he said, now go out there and uh, make up for your behaviour on Thursday at training. You were an embarrassment to me and then you were an embarrassment to your father. And oh. I said to him, I literally and said... you would have been like 17 or 18 at this age. Yes, this 16, time. 17 years old. Um, and so I literally said to him, I said, what the fuck did you say? And he just walked off. And then I've gone onto the field and I think it was maybe third or fourth ball of the game just to make matters worse. I got given out caught behind of a ball that hit me in the thigh pad. So I've now got steam coming out of my ears, um, you know, mentally fucked. Um, un- unpacked my kit. Um, I think I may have even cried. I, I walked uh, around the oval and I called my dad and I said to him, did I embarrass you on Thursday night? Because did you say anything? And now he's equally as mad as what I am. So I've walked back past the um, pavilion where um, the, the teachers are. and the parents and the coaches are and they're, like, and they're looking at me and I, I looked up at him and I gave him the finger mm. and I walked home. <laughs> I was so I think the first ball was bowled at probably nine a.m. and I would have been home by nine thirty, um, and then I think my old man actually went down to the ground and uh, and he pretty much hid from from dad and um, you know there was obviously a few follow ups from this kind of interaction but that that was the last time I ever played an official game of cricket so. Yeah, it's weird that coaches and teachers, they think if you do something wrong or whatever it is or let's let them down or stuff up, that your parents are going to be angry. Mm. But I think, I can't say I'm not a parent, but I know with my parents, they don't care if I make a mistake or they don't care if I fail or whatever it is. They honestly just want to see me happy. Like if it, That's why I think... My mum said the same thing. She was like, I don't give yeah. a fuck if you become a ballerina dancer. Yeah, that's like all I used to do when I was younger and still do is build Lego. It's, I do it... All the time. Yeah, I've seen you Yoda one recently. And, yeah, and all it's literally all I do. And I'm literally just sitting in my room playing with a few pieces and then it turns into something. That's not that's not for anyone else's thing. That's just for me looking at something. But my parents see me happy doing that and I smile while doing it. So they go, okay, well, you can keep building Lego. We don't care what you're doing. Just You could be doing worse life. things yeah. for, for a mindful activity or just a, a hobby. Yeah. You could be a, doing much worse things. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, I feel like I don't. It's not a bad habit. Hundred dollars on a set of Lego. Hundred dollars you can spend on something a lot worse. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Mate, talk to me about your food because food I is- I laughed a lot. Mm-hmm. Again, we grew up. I don't know about you, but I spent the first ten years of my life in a dressing room, and so the smell of sweaty cricket pads and Denka rub is somewhat really comforting to me and it almost uh, brings me a bit of deja vu, like a safety in there. Yeah, I've got a very, I can relate to that a lot mm. and it sounds probably really bad, but the smell of cigarettes. When I smell cigarettes, I go, oh, this feels like home and I, 
don't know why. Oh, well, I do know why. It's because dad loves smoking. But, but it's probably almost it's, more the secondhand, like on the skin, on the clothes, yeah, I, rather I've, than the cigarette. I've, yeah, like I've never had a cigarette and I like I think they're disgusting, but he smokes them all day and he's been doing it since I was born. So Does some cool I'm, magic tricks with them too. <laughs> yeah, he's got some cool magic tricks. So when, you know, if I'm out or I'm at home or in the car and I can sort of smell it, I go, oh. It's weird, but it smells like home. I know exactly what you mean. It's yeah. the most people would be grotesque. Yeah, think it's grotesque. The smell gross, of cri- sweaty cricket pads. It's a very unique smell. Combine that with yeah. a bit of deep heat and uh, body odor, mm. and a, it, it's a safe smell. Yeah, it's I a safe it's weird, smell. But I think yeah, we can understand that. Yeah, but what I was getting at is growing up in that environment. I was obviously you know spent a fair bit of time around these my idols, my family. They were, they were our extended family, the Australian cricket team. And um, I always knew that your old man was a fussy eater. Like one of the last <laughs> memories that I have of actually hanging out with your dad was at the Sydney Cricket Ground at the test match in the Ashes where Steve Waugh scored 100 and I think it was on the last ball of the day potentially. And it might have even been his last test match. I can't recall. But 2007? It would have been about right. Yeah, that was, I was there as well. That was his last test match. Were you in the train 2007. Trip? I would have been. I was playing on my... All I remember was playing on my DS and in PictoChat riding to, like, I think it's James McGrath, Glenn McGrath's son, and there's yeah. a few other cricketers' sons. All just on our DS is playing PictoChat. Yeah, right. And Mario Kart. And we were probably both there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I remember the same test match. I think it was when Matthew Hayden kicked his foot through a, a chair and broke it. Or, I don't know. We got to see some funny shit. But... Um, yeah, I remember your old man was sitting there having a pie with sauce <laughs> and he was like, don't tell the coach. Don't tell the coach or something <laughs> coach. like that. And uh, he always had a reputation for being a fussy eater. Yeah. And then obviously I've come to meet you and got to see in your relationship with food, which is even more entertaining and humorous to me given yeah. that what I do for a living is basically uh, nutrition. So talk me through that, man. What are the foods that you only ate for a long period of time? And let's talk about... Maybe the thought process behind that. Okay. And what have you been breaking into? We'll say pre-SAS and post-SAS. Yeah, right. So pre-SAS, mm-hmm. I had probably 10 foods. Yeah. Maybe 15, but 10 sort of just things I can say. is toast, cereal, <laughs> eggs, bacon, pizza, pasta, lasagna, apples, nachos. And yeah, there, there wasn't there was a hot dog. There wasn't much sausage rolls. There wasn't much. It was the unhealthy foods. Mm. But then when I went on SAS, you know, we didn't have the luxury. You of didn't saying, have the oh, choice. Can I have this, or you know, I'm hungry. That one of the things that they would do would starve, or well, not starve you, but food deprive you. So they wouldn't give you enough calories to function, mm-hmm. so operating at one percent. And so on the first day we got there, when we jumped out of the helicopter into the cold water and we done our swim and. I got changed and then did some army crawls and running and stuff. And you've never done when, shit like this before either? Never, ever done Because you know any- they're on footy pre-season camps no, where I the think- idea is to just fuck you up. Yeah, I've never done anything like this before. But I'd watched the series in the UK and so I knew what I was getting myself into. I wasn't walking straight into the deep end. So mentally yeah. I was sort of prepared, but physically probably... Oh, physically I was as well, but not. I didn't know what it was going to feel like on my body. Sure. But anyway, after all of that, we go back to the accommodation and there's soup soup to like keep our bodies warm and obviously it's not nutritious enough to give us a lot of energy but it's just to keep the bodies warm 
So I was trying vegetable sort of soup? soup. I think it was vegetable, vegetable soup. soup, potato soup, tomato soup. Tomato soup was actually really good. It just tastes like the sauce of tin spaghetti, <laughs> which was really good. And then, so I was enjoying that. But then, you know, for the dinners, I think the first dinner was steak. But it was like... Oh, you never had steak? And I'd never had a steak. But it was what? like, it was the size of this chess piece. And we had about three or four of them. So I was trying that for the first time. And it tastes like just a really dry hamburger. Was this stuff wine. in the contract? Like saying that they're going to give you... No. Not much food. But it's, it's just... You know, sort of. That's what you. You assume in the military, they try and bring it into real life military stuff. You know, when you're in the military, you don't have the luxury of going. Oh, I feel like this, or I want this. So I'm going to go down and just grab a Uber Eats. It's not that. So which is such a strange concept to me because I'm thinking that if we're sending military soldiers out to war to defend our country, they need to be pretty alert and focused, and yeah. that means they're going to need good nourishment. Oh, well, they, they, would, they would obviously have, you know, high proteins and nutritional food in the military, but for this course, they wanted us to be at 1%. So okay, they, yeah, I understand. They give us enough to function, but not enough to be like, oh, I'm so full now, I've got lots of energy. If you've got that, well, you know, you're a lot stronger and have more energy after a full you know, full feed and sleep and water and all that sort of stuff. So we didn't have that. But I think I was kind of lucky with, you know, going into these lunches and dinners and breakfasts, I was starving because our, we were so mentally and physically drained. Mm. So my, I don't know, my taste, but my taste buds were like, okay, well, I'll eat it. And I also knew subconsciously I have to eat it because there's nothing else coming. Yeah, you got to go. So I was just eating these and I, you know, eventually tried rice tried porridge and I tried all these different foods and I was like you know what it's actually it's not that scary because I used to think yeah, what food, were you scared about before? I don't know just green just creature of habit yeah I just I was so content and happy with what I was eating and I didn't you know feel shit or I think I look okay and I was operating perfectly fine and the funny thing I say about that is like because I work in the space of nutrition and a lot of people like are encountering things, whether it be anxiety, depression, digestive irritability, pain, dysfunction, um, metabolic disorders, you know, poor blood sugar management, diabetes. All of these things are going up yeah. and up and up in society. Um, but the point is, it's like, you can get away with it until yeah. you can't. And th- you can yeah. get away with it while you're young. I you know what I mean? So you're still only 22. But yeah. if you didn't make any changes... I'd be scared for the 40-year-old version of yourself. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely aware of that because I know I can get away with it while I'm young, mm. healthy, keeping active and got luckily a good metabolism. But it's sort of, I don't know, I've, it sounds so weird and probably unhealthy, but when I see <coughs> Maccas, if I'm really sick, I'm like, oh, I, just placebo. I know it's instantly if I'm getting that food, I'll feel okay, even though it's probably food is the habitual. shittest food for you, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I don't know, growing up, I was just always, you know, toast for breakfast or cereal. Lunch can be, you know, a burger and then for dinner was a pizza. And I was having that all the way up until I was probably 20, 21 years old. I never really got too experimental with my food. Mm-hmm. So whenever I was going out for dinners, it would always have to be either a pub or an Italian restaurant. Yeah, I was like going to say, a lot of Italian in there. A lot of, a lot of Italian. I used to love Italian food. I still do yeah. love Italian food, but now yeah. it makes me feel like shit after. Yeah. So I've learned to delay the gratification a little bit. Yeah. No, but that's definitely something that when I was on SAS, trying all the new foods was awesome. And then... So what do you enjoy? What did I enjoy? What the, foods did you enjoy? The steak on yeah. the first night. The soups. Thank God. The soups. Um, uh, just normal chicken, mm-hmm. like tenderloins and roast chicken. 
and rice. Yeah. They were good. Um, what I, and I tried rock melon was really nice and pineapple. Rock melon, the green one, yeah? Or the or yellow orange one? Uh, I was getting confused. Mountain Dew, what's it called? It Honeydew. I can't remember. It was all cut up and we just... All right, it. so you had, the, you had the rock melon and you had the watermelon, did you say? No, watermelon, horrible. I tried that. I saw that. Mate, that... I know. I went. I was talking to somebody the other day because I was like, "Yeah, I'm getting Jackson on the podcast. It's been really cool. I'm going to ask him about the foods and have a chat because I think that'll be." I said, "I really like what he's doing there because I've seen the confidence that you've built in SAS, and yeah. now I like that on your social media." And yeah. I went to show them because I was like, "It's really funny," but mm. you'd actually you've deleted a few. I haven't deleted a few. I've stopped doing them. Right, or maybe yeah. they're on the story or something like that. They're something on, permanent. If you click the reels, uh, they'll be there. I just okay. hid them from the grid because I know a photo of me like, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a bit funny. Got yeah. all right, I've got to dig a little bit further. Yeah. But how do you not like watermelon, man? I know, I said something so dumb when I tried I took a bite and I went, oh, it just tastes like water. And then they went, ding dong, it's 98 or something percent water. Oh, shit. Yeah, it so, is... Um, a lot of water, yeah, but that's what I mean. How do you, it's just it's sweet water, and on a hot day, cold, crisp watermelon. That's well, like anybody's gonna like. I think that. that's the mistake I made. It was. I think I just got home from the beach. It wasn't. It was still a nice day, but mm-hmm. I, know, I wasn't really craving fruit. Yeah. But I tried it, and I went, yeah. But one fruit I did like was obviously the pineapple and rock melon. But there hasn't been many foods I've tried and liked, which is I'm annoyed about. The first thing I gave a good rating when I did it was a beer. Because I'd never had a beer either. Yeah, you had the Corona, yeah? Yeah, I had a Corona, which was... Probably a good beer to start with. It quite, was... Yeah, quite it gentle. W- yeah, it was a boiling day. It was hot. I was like, yeah, I'll try a beer. And it was just as Dan Andrews was saying, get on the beers. I was like, oh, that would be funny. I'll try my first beer. And so I did that. But yeah, I, don't know. I need to try some more. I've got a list of what I need to try. It's like pancakes with maple syrup. I've had pancakes, just not with maple syrup. So what do you usually have in your pancakes? Just butter and sugar. Butter and sugar. Mm. Lemon? People used to do the lemon and yeah, raw sugar on the pancakes. That was never my jam. Yeah, no, I didn't like the restaurant uh, lemon mm. jam. I need to try jam. Now that you've, you've never had jam. I haven't had jam. What else? There's a lot. I want to take you. List, I want to take you shopping. I want to do a video. I'll like have you over for dinner one night. We'll do yeah. a food tasting night. I want to do like a blind. You just you're blind, and then there's a bunch of different foods, and I have to try them. That so requires a lot them. of trust. Yeah. That could go horribly wrong if someone wanted to fuck you over. Yeah, they could. Yeah. But I'd get someone like you who I trust and you some healthy <laughs> Oh, you've just guilt, guilted me. I don't know if you should have trusted me. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's, I don't know. Ever since coming back from SAS, I just wasn't scared of food. Good. It sounds so weird. Why should you be scared of food? But, I don't know, my whole life at growing up. Change can be was, scary yeah. when you're used to doing something for 20 years. Yeah, I don't know. The thought of trying something new when I sort of don't need it. Mm-hmm. If I if I was eating all these foods and I felt really shit or I started I wasn't looking the best or I was getting weaker or you know I, I felt sicker but because I'm not feeling any of those things I haven't changed. Do you I've know, got do you know what's interesting now. about that statement though is because I consult you know I've consulted with thousands of people on the topic of nutrition and if I asked you today what you would rate your overall well-being out of 10, let's say you give me a seven, right? And you're like, yeah, I feel pretty good most of the time, but there's always room for improvement, sure. In a way, you're probably operating at some sort of suboptimal par and you're not even aware of it. And when we actually took all these preservatives and, you know, low nutrient density foods 
and replace them with whole foods like high protein, high fat, cleaner carbohydrates, let's say from the rice, potatoes, maybe even a little bit of pineapple here and there. You would probably look back, if you'd put a month together of that, you'd look back and go, wow, I was called it a seven, but it was probably only a five. Yeah. You know, we get very used to, the body's very clever. It can adapt and that's just your new normal. Well, I think the first time when we met, when I was telling you about my diet and what I eat and blah, 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 I think you actually said something like your brain, say say I feel like shit right now, which I don't, mm-hmm. but my body probably feels like shit and my brain's just told it, no, 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 this is what you usually feel like, don't worry about it. It's trying to block out the actual feeling of shit. Yeah, so there's a communication yeah. pathway between your stomach and your brain. Mm-hmm. So... And there's a statement there that I use that says the body downregulates sensitivity to constant stimulus. So, for example, I've got an earring in my ear at the moment. I can't feel that there until it gets tugged on, yet it's always touching me. So if I'm always eating inflammatory food groups, my sensitivity and conscious awareness of the problems that that may be causing in my digestion become very blunted. So until we take them out and have an opportunity to regain sensitivity, we can't fully be aware of what that number out of 10 of our wellness really is. And then when we look at the brain chemicals, because you mentioned your feelings there, I suppose. So when we look at your brain chemicals, so things that are quite literally responsible for how we feel, we look at dopamine, which is responsible for motivation and drive, we look at acetylcholine, which is responsible for memory, mood, clarity, clear thinking. Um, then we've got GABA, which is our inhibitory neurotransmitter for calming us down. And then we've got serotonin, which is famous for making us happy, which also makes us tired. So those neurotransmitters aren't just there. They're not hardwired. So they require, they get basically, they require micronutrients as the ingredients or amino acids, which comes from proteins, which then get, they built in the stomach and then they make their way through the brain, through the vagus nerve and end up as neurotransmitters where they're used and then they need to be basically cleared out or detoxified, if you will, and then replaced. So it's a constant churn and burn in a way. So the foods we eat dictate neurotransmitter activity and obviously the better quality food we have, the better quality neurotransmitters we create, the better focus and energy efficiency and capacity we have to put into things. So I'm thinking about you in terms of poker and all that. If you ate the right foods, you'd probably be a bit smarter. Yeah, I'm trying to think as well. Maybe that's why I said before when I see, you know, the McDonald's sign, I feel so happy and it's like, oh, because I know what it tastes like. (laughs) But it probably... It's my addictive shit, yeah. It's really bad. Yeah, it is. So that's why when I got back from uh, SAS and around January, February, and gym started opening up properly back in Melbourne, yeah, I started having chicken and rice after every single gym, and it was probably the first time where I went, like, shit, like, I don't feel bloated. And I mm. realised after a meal, you're not meant, well, you can sometimes, but you don't have to feel bloated after yeah, every Yeah, but it's not normal. Meal. That's just been accepted because it's so yeah. common. So I thought for me, after every meal, you should be like... <laughs> Well, people have started to associate that feeling of being stuffed with satisfied yeah so i thought like after you know a burger and she'd be like, oh i'm so I'm so satisfied but you're actually bloated and it's really bad for your body mm. so when i was having the chicken and rice i know my stomach wasn't out i was like what? i've just had a meal why isn't it mm. but yeah it definitely i need some nutritional advice from you please if you can write a plan 
That's fine, like mate. That. We can do that. I, I'll I'll do for you what I do for so many people. Like people overcomplicate nutrition. That's, I saw it. Yeah, you don't but, need to. You just mate. Pretty much my philosophy on nutrition. Like I said, if we look at the prevalence of these uh, health issues that have skyrocketed in the Western world, they've gone up dramatically over the last fifty to one hundred years. So I just say to myself, like, let's have a look at what's changed in that time period. Well, food, mass yeah. agriculture and, yeah, fast food, so chemicals and preservatives that are on our foods. So easy then, to get, yep, drive through. Technology, all those sorts of things. So my nutritional philosophy is basically reverting back to, which is I where the living rewired, that. that name come from. Yeah. So my f- nutritional philosophy is basically ask yourself this question. Was it available a thousand years ago? Yeah, I always do that. I always try and bring it back to like exactly. primal days, caveman days. What would have they been doing when there wasn't a McDonald's or there wasn't X, Y, and Z? Exactly. And if the answer is no, your body's probably not going to appreciate you eating it. If the answer is well, yes, go for it. And don't have to avoid food. Nourish your body. Go go hard on it. Eat lots of it. And if you think a thousand years ago, there hasn't really been much change from humans. No, evolution's fucking slow. The only thing is our appendix, isn't it? The appendix was used to digest grass, something like that. And now the, that's the only thing in our bodies that we don't use or something because we don't have to eat grass anymore. Is that right? I don't know much about that. I'm going to have to re- fact check it. I really hope I'm saying that correctly because if I'm not, I'm going to look really dumb. But I think it's something That's fine. Like You're that. not the one who's meant to be an expert <laughs> in nutrition here. Yeah. You're the one on poker. Yeah. No, I just, I just, I've just, yeah, I, it's something like that. So it always amazes me when I always think very similar to that. A mm. thousand years ago, was this happening or, and I always bring it back to social media, like if a thousand, even 10 years ago when it wasn't around, why am I feeling like this? Why do I care that this person didn't like my photo? Why am I tapping my phone every two seconds to see if that person replied? That's the dopamine it, addiction. Know. You get addicted That's to that gratification and that notification, that external validation, which we've probably like been ingrained because of our lifestyle. Yeah, well, you know, we're maybe a little bit more sensitive to those things at times. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'm so happy now that I'm at a place where I don't need that fake gratification because it is fake. It's yeah, 100%. so fake. You can't post a photo and you say all these people like your photo that you don't think, oh, that, that person actually likes me or like X, Y, and Z because all they're doing is... And that's why like, I use it as a business tool. Like people yeah. look at my social media and they'll be like, oh, he's a gym junkie. I'm like, no, I use that as a business tool and if it wasn't give. for my business, I prob- I would love to not have social media in a way. But that is an element of me. But I show you what I'm willing to let you see. Exactly. There's exactly. a hell of a lot more to me, as I'm sure there's a hell of a lot to you, than what's presented on your social media. It's like if you post a 60-second video of you giving nutrition advice or training advice, mm. that's 60 seconds. Yeah. You've got 23 hours and 50 minutes left in your day. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I get you. You've got so much time left in your day, but they think because they see that 60 seconds, that's who you are, or that's, mm. like, it's not. You've got so much more than, you know, this. And that's that's where that whole, I suppose, danger of social media comes in because we're in the, the state of comparison, you well, know what I mean? And yeah. especially for the kids now, like, at least, at least when I finished school, like, we were still on MSN. Like, so you get home and you'd have a chat to someone, you know, from maybe a different school or something like that. But I think um, MySpace was just coming on board. Um, I was pretty late on the scene. Like, a couple of the boys had Facebook and Instagram well before me. But I'm really grateful for that because I can only imagine how difficult it is. At least, like, let's say we were not having a good time at school, which we had bad days probably. Mm. And like any kid... 
But at least at three o'clock you got to go home and you were then safe with your family and avoidant of that until 9am the next morning when you were back in class. Yeah. But now there's kids that have got social status at 13 years old because they got 5,000 followers and you go home and someone is still fucking ragging on you, sending your messages because, I don't know, maybe you dropped your lunch or something so yeah, minute, I- but it's... Kids are nasty. I know, and I feel so bad. I think I'm lucky that I just got to miss it because I, I, Instagram sort of came out when in 2011 or 12. So I was around 13, 14, but it wasn't used as it is now till probably I was finishing school. Mm. So I feel bad for people like my sister and people younger than her because they're going to be going, having Instagram since they were 10 years old when they first get their phone or however old they are. Mm. So when you're, you know, going through your teenage years, especially when you're, 13, 14, 15, and you're, you know, experimenting or whatever, if someone that you like, you follow them and they don't follow you back, you might think you just, it's the end of the world. Yeah, you get low self-worth like you, now. I know, and then you just, you go and hide and... Mate, it's quite literally, like, so if we look at it about so, the brain reaction, yeah. so you get a notification, you get a like, you get a dopamine, mm. um, you get a dopamine kick, so dopamine's the pleasure center of the brain. Yeah. So you, when you're going from you know, adolescence into adulthood through your teenage years, it's probably the most volatile, terminant, terminal fucking, you know, time period of your life where you're trying to figure out where you fit in with society, what you like, what you don't like and all that jazz and who you are as an individual away from what your parents have, you know, yeah. encouraged you to be. You're quite literally, it's almost like we're going, that's okay, if time gets tough, here's the bottle. I know. Have a drink. It's the same fucking thing. I know. And people think that when you're, you know, especially for people who post every day or these influencers and they go, I'm feeling really sad. I'm going to post something to get fault, to get, you know, that false dopamine hit of people liking your photo. And Mm. sometimes when you say you usually get a thousand likes on a photo, but you only get 950, you go, why didn't you get a thousand likes? Mm. Why is it 50 short if you think it's a better photo? So you end up deleting it or, you know, you end up doing whatever with that photo and you feel shit about yourself. But it's not real it's so not real it the why why i think instagram is great is because you can communicate with people like you reached out to me through instagram yeah and if you know if that platform was never available you know who knows we never may never, never may, yeah we might not have met. had that opportunity but that's what it's awesome for but it's also so bad for the dark side of it which isn't spoken about enough like have you seen the social dilemma i haven't but i've heard a lot of talk about it's, it and yeah. i've heard it's actually very good it's but all, um it's, yeah it, it's kind of like, because it is still kind of new, like you said, it only came out in like 2011, 2012 or whatever it may be. It's almost like it had to get worse before it got better. So we need to see it fuck up a lot of people before it gets um, embodied in the education yeah. sort of system because there's never probably been a more important time to be a parent and protect your kid from such dangers, yeah. you know what I mean? Because it does come to user responsibility and I feel very empathetic for those that have so much pressure on their shoulders because they didn't get enough likes and feel the need to delete their photo, yeah. you know what I mean? And that's what they're, that's what they're I suppose, measuring their, their self-worth off. Yeah, say like you've got person A and person B, exactly the same people, but if person A walks into a room and they've got a 1,000 followers versus person B walks into a room who's got 50 followers... Fallacy of person, authority. Yeah, this person's automatically... I could be wrong, but automatically going to feel like less of worth to that person. Mm-hmm. But that person shouldn't feel any better than that person. You're both like humans. Yeah. You're both people. I mean, of course, it's all contextual where it's yeah. used, but no. So, mate, what do, what do you reckon the... Tell me a little bit more about SAS and that overall experience because we see what we saw on the episodes. Mm. 
Um, and I really enjoyed watching it. Um, and a large part of that was to do because I was interested in your journey on it. Um, Thank you. And, you know, it was cool to see Mitchell Johnson on there. Um, but, like, I remember you said to me, like, with the, the episode, you know, we see an hour, but how much time was condensed in those episodes to make that hour of footage? Yeah, so that's what I explain to people if they go, was it as hard as it looks? And I'm so happy that it came across really hard because it was. Mm -hmm. it was it, like, it was real and it was hard and it was cold and all the things you saw, it was very real. So that's why I like when people say, you know, well done, blah, blah, blah. But then obviously you get the people, what was it like? And the way I explain it is if you watch one episode which goes for one hour... That's us genuinely being there for 24. And for that 24 hours, you're not getting your eight hours sleep. So you've still got 16 hours. You've got, you know, all this time in the day and they're always doing something to you. Mm -hmm. So say you finish doing the gun course or some sort of activity. When you get back to the accommodation, it's like, all right, you know, you've got eight or nine hours. Just, you know, just chill. It's, no, it's you know, you've got an hour we're going to be coming knocking on your door and then you're going to be out in the parade square or sometimes they don't tell us so then we have to be ready and go. But when you get back to the accommodation, you probably eat for 10, 15 minutes and then you're drying your clothes. And the accommodation every, wasn't exactly fast. The, the accommodation start. was a barn, mm. the, um, not a sleeping bed. It was like a, yeah. not the best thing. Yeah, it was like so, a prison bed. Yeah, and so when you're going to sleep, you're sort of you're sleeping with one eye open because they could come in at any time. Mm. But yeah, there wasn't much rest, but it was... The hardest thing I've ever done. Was the, the cold best. the hardest thing about it? Well, going into the course, the two things I was not scared but wasn't looking forward to the most was the socialising and the cold water. Yeah. Because the socialising, I don't, there's my worst nightmare is, you know, a wedding or a function of some sort, going into it and not knowing anyone. Like that's, that's my worst nightmare and having to make small talk and introduce yourself. Or what what, what about that scares you? Is it just the uncomfortable nature of having to have bullshit conversations that are just yeah, repetitive? I feel like the small talk, you know, oh, like what do you do for work or, you know. Because that's what everybody here. asks you first too. So, oh, so what do you do? It's like, oh, it's such a bad question. It's so hard to explain. Mate, I lie. What do you say? I just, because if I'm not, stimulated by that environment I'm there out of obligation yeah you're there to say support a friend or so so people are like oh you're nice to meet you. what do you do and I might say something like oh, I'm a hearse driver and they're like oh what's that like <laughs> pretty morbid and I just yeah. I thrive a little bit off their uncomfortableness you yeah, know what I mean they're expecting you to say something and then, then they expect you to ask them so then they can say what they do yeah exactly but I just see how much bullshit I can get away with yeah well maybe I should start doing that yeah, how's that for yeah. a positive piece of encouragement today? Yeah. Just start lying. Just start lying. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like that's just my worst nightmare because, one, the small talk, I know it's all bullshit. Yeah. You're not going to see that person again. Yeah. And, two, I just don't feel comfortable in big environments with people you haven't met. Mm -hmm. So going to that course, it was going to a course with people I'd never known, never met, and having to do exercises and stuff with them and get along with them because you can't afford to you know, lack teamwork or be selfish because you're going to get the rest of the recruits punished. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that guy. Mm -hmm. So that was the other thing I was not really looking forward to the most. So did and you feel in that experience somewhat of the same pressures that you had as a kid to not let people down, not let your country down, that you didn't want to let your teammates down knowing that you were um, out of your comfort zone and in the deep end? I do, but I was also going into that experience not trying to prove to, you know... 
not trying to prove to the whole world what I was capable of. I was trying to prove to people that no matter your, who your my dad hand. was, I can still get my hands dirty. But I wanted to just prove more to myself what I'm capable of because I'd never really done anything like that. So when I got you know approached, I was the first thing I was like was yes, and I wasn't doing that to be on TV show. And I don't, I'm not the TV show type of person. I wasn't doing it to, for that. No, I love the gym and I love exercising and I love using my body for stuff. So that's why getting that opportunity. Yeah, but you, you're not you're once. not an extroverted attention seeker. You're quite the opposite. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it, that's why it's the only TV show I'll do was because it wasn't a TV show at all. It was a military experience for 17 recruits. It was documented. See. Yeah, it was a do- yeah, you could say that. But overall, what I learned in such a short amount of time, which was eight days, was unbelievable. I came back with a diff- completely different perspective on life and a, a bigger appreciation for everything. So the whole but show was shot in eight days? No, no. So the course was 12 days. I was on it for eight. Yeah. I, okay, got you. Like, I was at my How many times did you wrestle with that decision of um, what was the word that they BW, used? BW. Yeah. Voluntary withdrawal. Yeah. Once. On the log carry, the hardest thing I reckon that probably was in the whole course. I think it was the fourth day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Body just carrying that log by then too. 10 kilometres, however far it was, with six or seven people on the log, eight people. That I found was the hardest thing for me. So at that point, I was like, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. And I was thinking about doing it. I let go of the log when I was meant to be captain of the log carry and all this stuff. But, you know, all of the other recruits were like, mate, you're 21 years old, you're so strong, you're fit, you can do this, blah, blah, blah. Then mm. Billy, the DS, was like, come on, you've got this, you know, you want to prove. They look like they would have been good blokes. Of. Yeah, I, I got really lucky with all my recruits. They were all awesome, especially the, the DS. They had so much wisdom and you can just tell... <laughs> They've seen some shit. Yeah, like when you look at them in the eyes, like, whoa. They're different individuals. When you're around them. Because as soon as, not trying to, like, brag, but I've met some pretty cool people, and I'm sure you have too. Mm -hmm. But there's an energy they have, and you go, whoa, they're, you know, really successful. But when you're around these guys, it was a completely different Different energy. It was like, like, shit. It's almost like composure. Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm I'm not speaking unless spoken to and all this stuff, but... In the eyes, huh? Yeah, and you just wanted to listen when they speak and... Over, yeah, overall, it was just an awesome experience. What was Chappelle like? Chappelle was cool. She mm. said I was one of her favourites, which was nice. Yeah, that's nice, well. You can and, you know, over, I call Chappelle a friend. Like, she's a mate, you mm-hmm. know. I haven't caught up with her yet because I haven't been, you know, we haven't been in the same place at the same time. But I just saw Billy was doing, um, he's doing like a little tour around Australia of his talk and his journey mm. and all the recruits from Gold Coast and Sydney and they were all catching up and I was lucky that I just did it in Melbourne mm-hmm. and I got to see all the other rec- the recruits that I hadn't seen for the first time since doing that show and it was just awesome because we sort of created a bond with one another, not a friendship mm-hmm. and I think the difference between a friendship and a bond is, you know, we can be friends and drink and go out and train together and all that stuff but a bond is when, you know, if we go in an ice bath together and we're really cold and, you know, we had, we made through experience. Yeah. So I feel like that was the bond. And, you know, with those guys going into an ocean, having to cross your arms for an hour while the waves are going over your head and, you know, carrying 20 kilos on your back, 10 kilometers every day in boots while it's raining, while being yelled at, it was just, when you get back to the accommodation, it's like, like well done. And, you know, it's, it was an experience. So we created bonds and, you know, just overall it was, 
That's awesome, man. Mate, thank you so much for coming on. All good. Uh, thank you, Jack. Been Appreciate good. it. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.